Hi, and welcome to Life Struggles. On this show, we interview people who have mental and physical health issues, addictions, relationship problems, and anything else that life may bring you as a struggle. My name is Christy, and I'm going to help give you hope and, with other people, our own advice to you from our own achievements. Our goal is for you not to feel alone in your struggles. Our guests will include actors, authors, professionals, and ordinary people like me. In today's episode, Martin will talk about his beginning of his struggle with alcohol to his ending his struggle by going to prison for almost 20 years and where he is today. Hi, everybody. Today, I have a special person that nearly spent 20 years in prison for a DUI manslaughter. While incarcerated, he received his degree, master's degree, correct, in psychology. And today he's here to share his story with us. So let's welcome Martin. Thank you so much for having me. It is uh, totally an honor to be here. Really happy to be here. And it's an honor to have you here. Thank you. So this is an amazing story and probably very hurtful for you or others, but I think it needs to be told because you have done some amazing changes in your life. Thank you. So how, how about if we just start from the beginning? Sure. So I grew up with both parents in the household. I grew up in Northeast Portland and which is much different today. It's been totally gentrified and you it's wouldn't better. recognize it. Yes, it's, it's, well, for the most part, it's better, but it's, it's, it's culturally much different as well. Okay. So growing up, it was predominantly Black. It was like 90% Black. Okay. And during the gentrification process throughout the 90s and 2000s, uh, most of the Blacks were pushed out. And a lot of people who were not Black moved in, bought up businesses, you know, improved, I will say. I certainly improved just the, you know, architecture and things like that. But, you know, it's, 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 it's just vastly different from, from how it was when I grew up. And so it was, it was an impoverished neighborhood when I grew up. There were gangs fighting for territory, selling drugs, prostitution, you know, gunshots every night. It was, it was pretty horrific. But I'll say that my, my parents... They were, they were very nurturing and they were very protective. And so they enrolled my twin brother and me in Little League Cubs, Little League Sports and Cub Scouts and Pop Warner football, pretty much everything they could to, I think, give us something to do after sure. school sure. so we wouldn't be caught up in the, the madness of the neighborhood. And so- Which is that, good parenting. I agree. I mean, they, they certainly did the very best they could at the time. Dad worked really hard to support the family. My mom was ill, so she couldn't work. She stayed home to take care of us kids. And that worked until we got to high school when, of course, every kid wants to kind of, you know, gain their independence, find new friends, 
you know, hang out with their peer group after school. And so for me, I was terribly shy. And so I would pretty much do anything to fit in. And so I remember that there was a guy at our school that we, you know, really looked up to. He was a gang member, very popular. All the girls loved him. All the guys feared him. He was, you know, he was a god to us, basically. He had everything that we didn't have. And so... So was this a huge high school? It was. It was a pretty pretty big high school, one of the larger ones in the Portland Portland metro area. Uh, It was a pretty mix. It was a mix of of white kids who lived in that better neighborhood and then the black kids who would take the buses out to that school right and so so, black kids that looked up with him as a godsend absolutely absolutely um because he was extremely popular and he was he was actually um he was very close to my family as well. So we kind of had the inside track to hang out with him, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so he he accepted us, but we had to kind of go along to get along. And so mm-hmm. what that meant was, I remember the first time that I tasted alcohol, he had taken us to a party and it's just packed. And of course, everybody's, you know, wanting to hang out with him and talk to him. And by proxy, we were important. And, you know, seen as popular because we're showing up to the party with him. So he so brings how old over. were you then? We were about 16, 15 or 16 years old at the time. Okay. And I remember he, he had come over to my brother and me and he handed us each a beer. And we're, we're kind of looking at each other thinking like, there's no way we can drink this. Mom and dad would kill us. Mm-hmm. Right. We weren't raised this way. But if we're going to be at this party, hanging out with this cool guy and be accepted amongst this this group of people, we got a drink. And so I remember I took my first few swigs of it. It was totally disgusting, just (laughs) just horrible. But I, you know, within a few minutes, you know, my body warms up and my, my fears start to, you know, dissipate. And now I'm able to actually talk to people without anxiety. I'm able to mingle with girls, you know, that I would have never approached prior to this first drink. And so I was like, oh my goodness, this is like a miracle drug to me because I can finally come out of this shy, timid shell and be sociable and have a life, right? And So I have a question to ask you then. Yeah. Um, I've, I've spoke with several doctors that are actually um, guiding in, in recovery programs. Mm-hmm. And they all agree that there's a gateway to alcohol, drugs, you know, whatever, whatever it is that's the addiction. Um, and yours, is, is it being shy? So, right. That was, that because was the prior- childhood was good. Exactly. Exactly. And my parents never drank. So it wasn't like I grew up in this, you know, drug infested alcohol, you know, saturated household. It was, it was the furthest thing from that. So here's what I'm imagining. I want you to see if you, if, if this is kind of where you're going. Um, so I remember my first drink, um, my first beer, and I had never had anything before. So I think the first time it probably affects you more than if you had, you know, had some, obviously. But I started feeling inhibited. No, non-inhibited, right? Yeah, uninhibited. Uninhibited. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
And I didn't like that feeling of not having control over myself. So I quit and I never did it again. <laughs> so I think I was probably blessed by having that feeling. But I, and I wasn't a shy person. But I was, I could see myself willing to do things that I would never do or say things that I wouldn't say, you know? So right. do you agree that it, it does give you that feeling of um, non-inhibited? Well, certainly it does. I mean, that's, you know, and, and, and in conjunction with that, it starts to affect your judgment and your ability to obviously think rationally and all these different things, but it certainly lowers your inhibitions, right? That's why you see people when they have had a few drinks, now they start to speak the truth to people, right? If, they're, if, if they feel a certain way about someone, then they'll start to verbalize that because those inhibitions totally dissipate with alcohol. And then you wake up the next day when you're sober and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what did I say? Oh, did I say that? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I feel so terrible because now your faculties, your cognitive, you know, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, kind of safeguards are back in place, right? That are totally lowered when you start to drink. And mm -hmm. so for me, it was, I mean, it was, it was the greatest thing ever at the time. And so that was, that was kind of what got me started with drinking, but as time went on over the next year, year and a half, I started to drink more and more and I would do it in isolation. Now it didn't require a social setting for me to drink because at this point I'm starting to internalize some deep seated insecurities that started to manifest in my life. And then so, you realize that if you drank, you didn't have to feel those things. Well, right? Exactly. Right. I mean, if I can self-medicate and make this go away, thinking that it will solve all my problems and I would never have to think about it again, then why not, right? Because it's, it's so much harder to confront what I was dealing with and actually handle it in a positive, constructive, pro-social way. Mm -hmm. If I can just drink and, and make it all go away, then that's a quick fix, right? And so then you, you kind of instill this, this, this you know, response mechanism in your brain that says, when we feel this way, we know how to get rid of that. Right. And right. so then it becomes an automatic response. It's not something you have to put a whole lot of thought into. And that's where the addiction starts to take root in that early primitive part of the brain that's just based on, you know, uh, uh, action and, and reward. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was the insecurity of being poor. It was the insecurity of being black. It was the insecurity of seeing, you know, all of my white classmates, not all, but a large part of them, like they got cars when they turned 16 and they could drive to school and they lived in nice houses with manicured lawns and, you know, clean streets where I lived the total, you know, the total opposite life. And so for me at that young age, and it started around 10 or 11 when we were going to the Cub Scout meetings in predominantly white neighborhoods. And I would think, well, why is it that all white people I see live this way and all black people that I see live the way that I live? And why is it that, that, that I'm confined to live that way? And is, is there something inherently wrong with me that would cause me to have to live this way and everybody I see live this way? And so that was when kind of that identity crisis started to really take root and the insecurities in me having a ceiling on my life to where even though inwardly I felt bright, I felt capable, but, you know, 
outwardly, I'm thinking there's no way I can kind of break into this middle-class white world of success because nobody I see around me is living that way. It's just not attainable. You know, that's interesting. Um, in, in, the, in the small town that I am now living in, have, well, have for the past 20 years now, we don't have Black people at all. Um, across the river, it's full of them. And actually, all the problems that there are are between themselves. Right. So things have changed a lot. Um, but my son has been on a, and he's now in college, so that doesn't matter, but starting in junior high and through high school. So he was on the basketball team. Um, of course, I'm like I'm telling you, this is an all-white town, so obviously he's on an all-white team. But he wanted to, he, he didn't want to play just the schools that, you know, the region we were in. He wanted to up his grade in basketball. So he tried out for a traveling basketball team that was um, based right in the heart of Chicago. And he was the only white boy that made it. And he was with all black boys. And he loved it. Um, they were a little jealous of him at first, which was kind of unusual because they already had their team. Like they only had two spots open and there was probably 15 black boys trying for it and him being the only white boy. And they just knew those black boys knew he wasn't going to make it. Right. You know, and their coach was both of them, the, the head coach and, and this assistant coach were black. And so like, but he's like, you know what? I don't, my son was like, I don't have a problem with blacks, but he never had to be around them. So right. he didn't know anything about it. And um, he went in there and he just did what he loved to do best. Right. Um, but the, the thing I think the boys liked about him is he's, he was a team player. So he didn't go in there and show off. He didn't go in there and try to outdo anybody. He just played his game. Right. And he didn't treat them any different than the person that he ran around with, you know, at home. Yeah. And by the second practice, it's funny because he came home, like talking like they did, like using their lingo. <laughs> Right. Like, you know what? I love it that you fit in, but you need to still remain yourself. Right. You know, and he's like, I'm not doing it on purpose. It's And, you know, that's true. And if you're a psychologist, you know, sociology, too. Right. That you just without even thinking about it, whoever you hang around with, you start talking like them, acting like them. Very true. Yeah. So then he gets back into his own school and they're like, why are you talking like a black boy? Right. But he's not meaning to. And then he just, you know, he would go, you know, I'm not trying to, but so what if I do? Right. Right. But I mean, those 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 social pressures to fit, you know, in a certain box and behave a certain way and dress a certain way. And 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 for me, you know, it's it's interesting you say that because um specifically for me, when I was struggling internally with my identity and what I could achieve in this world and things like that, which I just, again, continued to drown with alcohol because it was much easier. But mm -hmm. I remember I would, I had a job because my parents always, they had us working from 14. We would work a summer job. And then we turned 16, we would get a job after school. So I got a job at a, at a 
ice cream parlor and mm -hmm. everybody there was white and I, you know, they had what I wanted. And so I would change in order to be accepted amongst them. I would change the way I spoke. I would change the way I dressed. I had a whole separate wardrobe that I would wear when I would hang out with them, you know, polo and Tommy Hilfiger and, and, and kind of the preppy clothes that I would totally trade for my gangster clothes when I went back to my neighborhood to hang out with my black friends. So I was trying to navigate two worlds and it was just, it, it was just such what a struggle as you, as you can imagine, right? Yeah. And having to be two people, but it's all about that acceptance. And because I didn't accept myself and I relied on other people to, you know, validate me and to, to show me, you know, how worthy I am or what my importance in this world is. I was always at the mercy and the whim of somebody else and what they thought about me. Very fragile ego and self-concept and poor self-esteem and all those things. So that's where my addiction started at age well, 16. Let me ask you, did your parents know that you felt that way? So they didn't know. They knew I drank. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because I was exceptionally close with my mom. Mm -hmm. I was a mama's boy. I, I, wherever she, wherever she went, she would go down the street to hang out with her, her girlfriends. I was, you know, 10 minutes later coming to jump on her lap, you know, and did you get made fun of for that? A little bit, a little my bit. Son did. He, you know, I was the one that took him to all the practices and, you know, all that. And uh, yeah, he got, and we were very, very close too. I'm really into sports. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and his dad's into hunting and fishing mm -hmm. and he's not, he tried. And my son tried. He, he didn't like to kill a fish. He didn't, he, he thought it was boring to fish. You okay. know, he liked fast moving sports and dad didn't. So, and I did, but my whole side of the family did. So I was the one that was so involved. I mean, like we would stay after tournaments for the whole day long, watching other teams play. And, yeah. you know, that was our thing. Um, but he got called a mama's boy. Yeah. You know, and, and some kids will make fun, but it didn't matter. I, I love my mom dearly. And so, um, but she, she, she didn't know. She just assumed, I guess, that because we were teenagers now and that's kind of what teenage boys did. And initially she tried to, you know, obviously she didn't want us drinking, but then she accepted the fact we were going to drink. So was Her it health, both of you? What's that? Was it both of you, you and your brother? Yes. Yeah, so whatever I did, I know he it's did. his story, but. Right, right. Yeah, no, we, we were adjoined at the hip. I mean, that's my twin brother, the my twin. best friend in the world. Yeah. And so we had decided this is what we were going to do. She couldn't stop us. Her health was deteriorating at the time. No. And we were just going to do what we were going to do. And so at that point, she more or less said, okay, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it under my household. So I know that you're not out in the streets doing stupid stuff. So she accepted it um, to that extent. Now, I know, um, I know we have a long story to tell, but I, I have to stop when I think about it to, to get this out. What, what at this point with what you just said about mom accepted you know well boys are going to do this at this age and then her health was deteriorating what do you suggest to other parents if they're seeing this in their underage kids and seeing it being a problem to do right no I, I would absolutely get them enrolled in some form of treatment you know, at that point, you can, you can, you can force them. I mean, as their, as their custodian, as their guardian, you can mandate that they, that they go to treatment. And so you so, can do that, but if, 
they don't want to be, it's not going to help. Right, right. Well, no, that's true. So but here's the what thing. What can we do to stop it from getting that to that point of that's what I want to talk about? Right. So, so prevention is always about, you know, reiterating the fact that you are there to, to talk about whatever it is that, because ultimately we know they're only drinking by and large because they're trying to self-medicate. Right. Even if it's, a, even if it's about, you know, Oh, well, you know, my, my friends are doing it and this and that. So if they have this, you know, this, this overwhelming need to be accepted by anyone, well, then there's some, there's some, you know, some self-esteem issues there. There's some internal stuff, some struggles that need to be addressed. And they have to know that it's a safe space to go to their parent and talk Absolutely. to them about without being judged and condemned. And, you know, it, it has to be a positive, nurturing, loving response for them to know that that's a safe space, that you are that's an ally. not always easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something that we have to do. Unfortunately, we have to, I feel like, um, use self, self-love. Um, I didn't mean self-love um tough love yeah tough love yeah sometimes we just can't be that best friend yeah sometimes no you're right to put our foot down and say you know this is what's got to be done and they're mad at us they're mad at us they'll have to get over it later right and, and, and they, that's hard right but I, i'll tell you they found that that you know because a lot of parents when they're when their kids you know come of age 15 16 17 and they're starting to look, kind of pull away from the family a little bit, looking to you know hang out with their friends more and gain that gain that independence. A lot of parents will assume that just going along and kind of being their friend at that point is what they really want, and that's what's you know because they don't want to they don't want to have their kid turn against them. But really, what they found is that these kids, sure, they want that independence, but they still want the boundaries and the guidelines of a parent. They really yeah. do. They do. And, right. They absolutely. I, I have talked to ones that have felt like the when they saw the kids that were being disciplined and had the parents um, disciplining them and watching the things that they were doing, that they felt like their parents didn't care. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, no, stick to being a parent. You're going to do them a service and yourself a service if you're more of a parent than you are a friend. Exactly. Okay, so we're going to get back to your story. The other thing I wanted um, to to ask then is what about, I feel like one of the signs could be also if they start pulling away from the family, like spending more alone time. Right, because that's exactly, that's exactly what happened to me, right? My drinking started off as a social lubricant. This is fun. I get to hang out with people, but then it, it, it went to a more internal dark place. I mean, I, I would literally, literally lock myself in my room, turn on some sad music and drink because I was just wallowing in self-pity and, and, you know, just feeling terrible about myself. And so I, I was isolating. Did you have other siblings? I did. So the twin brother and then two older sisters. And but did they your were sisters notice anything? My sister, one of them who really paid attention, because when I wrote my book later, she read my book and she said, Martin, for the first time, I feel like I finally know my brother. She said, I knew you liked to drink, but I I I you know, I, I knew you liked to drink, but I just thought you drank because you thought it was fun. Right. I had no idea you were struggling internally and going through all these, you know, conflicts. But because I didn't tell anybody, I mean, it was embarrassing, honestly, 
But had I had that safe space and known that I wouldn't have been judged and wouldn't have been made fun of for, for feeling that way, then that would have been, I think that would have been or could have been the outlet that I needed mm -hmm. that would have prevented me from self-medicating. Right. And so I don't feel like we, and you're not, so I'm just I like talking to the people that are out there listening to. I don't, I don't feel like when we say, you know, like our parents didn't notice something or, you know, I grew up with both parents working, both of right. my parents, and they were also socialites. So they were on bowling teams at night. They were on bridge teams, on pinnacle teams. You know, they, they were gone a lot. Um, but they also on weekends did family stuff with us. I don't feel neglected. I don't, I, you know, I, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, I was one of those kids that when you got home from school, you didn't have any parents there. And, and I didn't, you know, I wasn't nurtured, right? Well, right. you know what? It, it, I don't know about you. And do you have kids? Are you married? I don't. I don't have any kids. Um, okay. I, I did have a son when I was 17 um, who passed away about three weeks before his first birthday, which further exacerbated oh, my my drinking. Thank you. But um, no, I don't have any kids. Holy cow. OK, so we'll we'll get to that too but what I so what I was going to say was that um I I think our most of our parents did what they could do right and that's why now it's so important to get it out to these parents that they're you know they don't even know these things are going on they they really have to pay more attention and they really have to be a parent and not a friend Right. And absolutely. Like I said, that's not an easy thing to do, especially when your kids are mad at you. Yeah. Right. But, no, um, very true. There's so much going on in this world and so many reasons for us to cover things and hide things. Right. We really need that parent that's that's going to step in and not be afraid of not being liked by their children. Right. So, no, you're okay, right. Hey, so OK, so now you have started drinking by yourself. Right. So I'm, I'm drinking by myself. I'm now drinking in excess amounts, as you can imagine. So this persists until uh, after high school, where I, I didn't graduate. I fell a couple credits shy of graduating high school. Like I said, I had had a son at 17. He passed away right before his first birthday. And my depression, I was already dealing with some depressive symptoms throughout high school but then this has really really sent me spiraling into a dark place and so I remember even coming from his funeral I went straight to the liquor store I bought you know a, a fifth of whatever it was and just drank it all day and so I literally numbed myself for the next year and a half until I got some pretty serious charges I had uh, conspired to commit a robbery with some friends of mine that I had gone to high school with. And in, in Oregon, there is mandatory minimum laws. And so for anything that's considered violent person-to-person -person crime, you're going to get a mandatory five years, 10 months, day for day, not a single day off for good behavior or you know getting an, an education or anything like that. Doesn't matter. You're going to do day for day. So, so we this all was over a robbery. This was for an armed robbery. So um, okay, it was an armed robbery. That's a felony. It is a felony. It is a felony. And 
So I'm 19 years old. I am sent to prison for five and a half years for that. My family's devastated, as you can imagine. But they stuck by my side. They encouraged me to get my GED, return to my Christian roots, you know, turn over a new leaf, get my life on track. So mm -hmm. I wanted to make them proud. So I did that. I get out at 22 years old. I was able to release a couple of years early. I, I completed a boot camp program and, and successfully graduated, went home to my parents' house, got a job at a warehouse, enrolled in community college courses with aspirations of becoming a nurse at the time. I'm doing treatment groups in the evening, part of my parole conditions, going to church, not drinking. Everything is great mm -hmm. for a a few months and then I'm thinking you know some of my old neighborhood friends are starting to come around because my brother still lived at home and so they would come over and hang out with him and I would be secluded in my room listening to Christian music drinking tea and they're in the other room doing everything but that and I felt secluded and so their again, pen was insecurities again. exactly exactly because I didn't address them when I was inside right I, I got my GED and I was going to church but the underlying root causes were still there so I started to hang out with them telling myself I can hang out with these guys but I don't have to drink I can yeah. still just hang out but we know that you know you hang out in the barbershop long enough you're going to get a haircut yep so I was clean shaven metaphorically speaking before I knew it I'm starting to drink every day, hanging out in clubs, taking any woman I could home, living recklessly. Um, I got my license. I got my driver's license. I saved up $5,000 in about six months, went and bought a used car, my first car. I loved it. It was a 96 Acura legend. And um, <laughs> so I'm driving around Portland, but um, I'm now drinking and driving right? I'm drinking and driving. And, and I'll say my mindset at the time was, I'm working, I'm going to school. I had met a, a young lady and moved in with her in Vancouver, Washington at the time, about 30 minutes north of Portland. I'm paying my bills, right? My insurance, I have my license, registration. On the surface, everything looks great. So why can't I, you know, if I'm managing... Ninety percent of my life is, but we know that as an alcoholic, you know, the alcohol doesn't just want ten percent of your life; it wants the whole thing. So I begin to drink more and more. I'm starting to drink in isolation again, and I'm out for two years. And this brings us into New Year's Eve of two thousand and three. So. New Year's Eve of 2003, it started off like any normal day, and I left my, my home in Vancouver, Washington, to the warehouse in Portland, where I worked at the time, and we had gotten off work early because of the holiday, so we're wrapping things up at about 11.30 that morning, and as we're about to walk out the door, I can still hear my boss joke with us and say, now, you guys go out and have a good time tonight, but don't let me wake up to see you on the front page. And of course, you know, we laugh it off and we clock out and we leave. But mm -hmm. as you can see, I've never forgotten those those prophetic oh, words. Yeah. So I went straight to the liquor store. I remember I bought a fifth of gin for $10. It was like my last $10 before I got paid in a couple of days. And I had traveled to my parents' house to hang out with my twin brother because that's where he was living at the time. And so we're hanging out and he cuts my hair and 
you know, we made plans for later that night to attend a friend's house party, a guy we had gone to high school with. And so we were all excited about that. And I drank that fifth of gin over the course of three or four hours. And then after that, as if you can imagine, I went back to the store where I bought four 24 ounce cans of beer, which is 96 ounces of beer that I consumed by myself for the next three or four hours. So it's now about 830 at night. Wow. And then my that's a lot of, lot of alcohol. So my brother and I decided we would go to another friend's house in the meantime to hang out because we didn't want to get to the party too early. So we get to that friend's house and the three of us hang out and we drink a pint of Hennessy together and we kill some time. It's now about 1130. So we go to exit his apartment to go to the party. And as we're walking out the door, his mother said, now y'all be careful tonight. You hear? And of course we're, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I remember distinctly like it was yesterday. And we had no intentions of being careful that night. Let's be clear, obviously. So we get into my vehicle, we go to the party, we drink more alcohol, we have fun, we bring in the new year, everything is great. We exit the party at about 12.15. Can I ask you a question? Please. Do you really think that once you have that much alcohol in you that you're even thinking about, oh, this is illegal, I shouldn't be driving. That's not even on your mind. There is no way you can possibly think rationally in those terms after you have consumed Mm -hmm. that amount of alcohol. You could have a fraction of that amount of alcohol and not think clearly about what you're about to do. Right. And that's, that's just a fact. Yeah. But, but. I wanted to clarify that with people because, I mean, Still, it's no excuse. I was drinking, blah, 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 you know. I mean, I, two people that don't have a problem yet, they know. They know that they shouldn't be, like, I don't know about in Oregon, but here you can't have, like, open liquor in the car, period. Right. That's illegal. It is Even illegal that. in Oregon as well, yeah. Okay, so, and we also know, you know, so I think it's, what, eight point something point zero eight yeah zero eight but um we know that before you get to that point we do and that's when they need to make that decision i need to wait until i get to wherever i'm going and then i need to stay at that place or i need to call something exactly after that it's pretty much out of your control right right because prior to that it's not day, giving them permission, I'm not doing no, that. No, a- absolutely. We would never, ever <laughs> try to make excuses or justify, but we are explaining, you know, how judgment goes out the window, rationality goes out the window when you have been drinking that much. You're not thinking about long term consequences if you right. drink and drive and what could happen and, and that sort of thing, which and is that's why what I- you're here for is to tell what continued to happen so these people realize. I, I've got to stop at this point and go, okay, that's enough for now. Exactly. Or I need some help. Exactly. Okay, exactly. So we exit the party at about 12.15 and we get in my vehicle. And again, my brother, my friend, or I never thought twice about me getting behind the wheel because if I'm being honest, and this is very sad to say, but all of us drank and drove every day like it was like it was nothing at all. 
I mean, that's how reckless we were. Mm -hmm. So we get into my vehicle. I take my friend home without incident. I get back onto the freeway to take my brother home. And at this point, all I'm thinking about is how exhausted I am because I've been drinking all day. I think I had one meal around 4, 4.30. And I just want to go home and go to sleep because I knew I didn't have to work the next day. And so I began to pick up my speed to about 80 miles an hour. Oh boy. And this, yeah, I, I was I was flying. And this makes my brother nervous. He says, hey, man, you know, you should slow down. You know, the police are out, especially it being a holiday and all. And, and I thought- and what time was it? This was at about- 12:45 a.m. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yikes. Everybody's leaving. They right. a lot of people out. Exactly. So we're on the freeway. I'm speeding. I slow down because he, you know, cautions me to slow down. I exit the freeway. We're now driving in a residential area. And again, I begin to pick up my speed now to about 60 miles an hour. Now Okay, thank you for listening for to our advertisement, and we are back. So I'm driving now in a residential area, and I pick up my speed to about 60 miles an hour. And this time, my brother, he grows more impatient with me, and he begins to yell, you know, slow down before we crash. And of course, I snap back at him, Ooh. calm down. I know what I'm doing. I got this, you know, and, and so we continue to drive. And we're, we're nearing the intersection where I'm going to drop him off to our parents' house. And as soon as I get into the left-hand turning lane, he suddenly realizes he's all out of cigarettes. He says, hey, bro, let's let's go up the road so I can get some cigarettes. I'm all out. I'm thinking, great. You know, oh, here's, almost home. here's one more stop that I don't want to have to make. I just want to now get him these, these stupid cigarettes and get him home so I can drive to my house in Vancouver. So we drive for a How couple more blocks. How far is that, by the way, from where you were? So Vancouver, Washington is about a half hour north. You just from crossed, where you were going to be dropping him off. From where I was going to drop him off, yeah. Okay. You just cross the I-5 bridge and you're That's right over. That's a long ways, though, with, though, when you've been drinking and now sure. you're right coming down, you're tired. And sure, exactly. Ahead. All of those factors, right? So we drive for a couple blocks, and then about two blocks from that point, there's an, another intersection, and I'm looking up at the light, and the light is yellow. As, as intoxicated as I was, I knew I was not going to make this light. There was just no way. But I just want to get these cigarettes and get him home. So you hit the gas. So I immediately punched the gas. And, and I'm almost tunnel vision, not saying anything to the left or the right of me. And literally three, four, five seconds, not even five seconds later, boom. I mean, just this, this earth shattering, you know, crash. And the, the airbag envelops my face. You know, I remember it felt like a parachute was, was on my face and my car comes to a slow winding halt. And I look to my brother and he appears to be okay. So I'm, you know, somewhat relieved. And at the same time, a guy comes rushing up to the driver's side door, you know, frantically. Are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? Yeah, we're okay. I tell him. And I step out of my vehicle and most but people- you were able to get out with that thing on? I was able, so the airbag, once it enveloped, then it, 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 it kind of, Inflated. you know, it, it, exactly. And okay. it just laid over the steering, the steering column. And so I'm able to get out the vehicle and you would think I would have gone to go check on the people I just hit. That's what most decent people do. But again, I'm extremely intoxicated. I'm extremely afraid. I was not afraid because here's what my mindset was. 
I was devastated that my vehicle, my prized possession, because I'm so superficial and self-absorbed at the time, that's all I was thinking about. Oh my God, my car is destroyed. This is my baby. So I'm walking around my vehicle. I'm looking at my custom rims that are mangled. The entire front end is smashed inward and I'm crushed. And then my brother gets my attention and he starts to point across the street and he says, hey man, he said, I think I see somebody, I think I see somebody lying down on the pavement and um, it doesn't look like they're moving. Mm. Instantly at that point, it dawns on me the magnitude of what I had just done. So I'm thinking about that. And as, as you can imagine at the time, lights and sirens are coming from afar, speeding to the accident or the crash, I'll say. I'm reluctant to call it an accident because I knew as we talked about mm-hmm. that I should mm-hmm. not have been driving, mm-hmm. right? So it's mm-hmm. it's a fatal crash or a fatal collision is, is what I refer to it as, not an accident. But at the point in time, it was an accident. Sure, because I didn't obviously intend to crash right. into a right. car right. And, and have that happen. And so the policemen are on the scene and they're talking to me and they, they take my brother a few feet away to talk to him. And about five minutes into that interview, that officer had confirmed to me what I had already known in my heart of hearts to be true, which was the person who was lying on the pavement had in fact died and hey, he, wait a minute mm-hmm. was was he walking no so i smashed into a vehicle so the vehicle was was in the intersection looking to turn north and i'm i'm speeding through that light him. i never saw them I never saw, my brother said he saw them right before we hit. And he said, Martin, I just knew you were going to slow down. And I literally never saw the vehicle. I just heard a boom. And I knew I obviously hit somebody. And so what happened was their car spun about 60 feet from, from where they were hit. And the impact was so great that someone who was in the back seat was actually ejected through the back windshield and onto the pavement and they died on impact. So it was somebody that was in the back seat. Somebody who was in the back seat. Apparently didn't have a seatbelt on. I believe that is the case. Well, yeah, because I mean, if they still, were they were ejected. Right. Matter, Certainly. And so Good for everybody put your seatbelts on. Absolutely. And thank God my brother and I had our seatbelts on because I can guarantee you, had we not, we both would have flown through that front windshield and we could not be here today. That's the one thing I did do right. Even though I drove drunk every day, which was a horrible, horrible thing, I made sure I did not drive without my seatbelt. So it saved my life. You were thinking of yourself. Exactly. Self-absorbed, right? Very much self-absorbed. And so the officer tells me that person had died. He okay. tells me that somebody else is being driven by ambulance to Emmanuel Hospital just blocks away. So I'm placed under arrest, of course, and I'm put into the back of the cruiser and we head for downtown for processing. And as I'm in the back seat, I'm listening to the police radio. There's a bunch of chatter, as you can imagine, you know, about the crash. And it hears, I, I hear what sounds like, I wasn't for sure, but it sounded like they had announced over the radio that somebody else unbeknownst to me had been pronounced dead at the scene that there was another passenger and so i asked the officer i said excuse me sir i said did i just hear that correctly that that somebody else died at the scene he said unfortunately yes so i'm thinking oh my god so as you can imagine how low i sank in that moment because if i'm being honest i'm trying to grasp the fact that i i just killed two 
innocent people that I had never met. But I'm also aware of the law at the time. And I'm knowing I'm 24 years old. I've been out two years and I was doing. Now it's not just one felony or not one manslaughter. There's now two two manslaughters in the first degree. And I know that each one carries a mandatory minimum of 10 years day for day. You do not get out early for anything. So I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to spend 20 years in prison. There's just no way. There's just no way. And so, um, so now taking, this is like drunk thinking. Right, right. Exactly. Because there's no way I can really process what's going on because I'm still heavily intoxicated. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. And so, and so I'm, I'm processed downtown and I, you know, leave my cell the next morning to call my parents and talk to them. As you can imagine, they're just in total shock. They're just in total devastation well, about this. Together. And so my brother, he was very confused when he got on the phone that morning. He said, he said, man, what were you thinking? Like, what happened? But I mean, like, was he taken anywhere? Like, no, because he was he was the passenger. Well, he had to call somebody to come get him or something. Well, we were we were four blocks away from our parents house. So he literally walked home. Oh, so he wasn't hurt at all. No, he was he was totally fine. And, you know, honestly, and this is this is a very unfortunate thing not that you want anybody to get hurt but it's usually the 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 drunk driver usually walks away from the scene and the people they hit are the ones who unfortunately die you know why Um, that is right well the physics of it right so well we well i t-boned them i mean i absolutely t-boned them they were in like a, a 88 jetta there was just you know they don't i don't know if they had airbags back then but, um, you know, it's just. Well, what I'm saying is, um, so when somebody's intoxicated, their their body is loose and limp. And so you, you're, you don't tighten up. And when you're not, and you see, and you can see something's going to happen, you immediately are like this. And Certainly. that's usually why they get hurt worse. Yeah. But, and anyway. that's, that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what happened. And so. So was there two people or not? There was two people who died and one who was injured. So I can't imagine what you had to feel. It was, it was, it was, it was devastation because now I'm sober. I'm sobering up the next day and I'm confronted with this reality that two people are not here because of my recklessness and also that I'm going to go to prison for about 20 years. So I'm in and my you cell. Were what age? 24. I was 24 years old at that time, and I'm in my cell, and I noticed someone had slid the Oregonian newspaper underneath my door, and I thought that's strange. I, I didn't ask to see a newspaper, right? Oh gosh. And so I pick it up and I begin to thumb through it, and I see my picture, my mugshot on the front page of the Metro section, and with each paragraph that I read, for the first time in days, you know, my victims became people. And these people had a very courageous story. And their story mm-hmm. was they were recovering addicts who had managed to turn their lives around, were now volunteering to help other women get clean and sober. They would watch women's kids so that they could go to AA meetings and NA meetings. Oh my they, they volunteer with MAD right? As ironic as that is, they volunteer with Volunteers of America. They were embedded in the recovery community. In fact, in fact, believe it or not, 
that night that this tragedy happened, they were returning home mm -hmm. from a clean and sober New Year's Eve party when they were struck and killed by a drunk driver. And so the oh, columnist, exactly. And he talked about that. He highlighted the, the sheer, he said, the palpable irony of this. It just, it just can't be explained. He said, but, but here's what I think. And he, he ended the article with this, and I'll never forget these words. Changed my life forever. He said, perhaps the person they will have ended up helping the most is the man who's charged with killing them, end quote. Wow. Now, this, this resonated, but I'd be lying if I said I fully understood what those words were supposed to mean for my life because I'm still processing the sure. fact that I'm going to go to prison for a very long sure. time. So I don't really know how this situation is supposed to help me, but like I could not ignore those words. So like for the next several months, I would just meditate on that phrase. You know, I'd be eating dinner and I'm, I'm hearing that phrase. I go to bed and I'm hearing that phrase just over and over and over. And eventually it came to me that, Martin, it is now your responsibility. It is your duty to carry on these people's legacies. The work that they were doing when you took them from this earth is now your calling. You have to do everything in your power to ensure that nobody else follows in these catastrophic footsteps. You have to help people who are struggling with addiction. You have to get the word out about the dangers, the irreversible dangers, catastrophic consequences of drinking and driving. This is your mission. This is your life. And so I committed to that. I didn't know what that was going to look like, how I would you know, embark on this journey for the next However many years at that time, I didn't know how long I was going to do in prison. I knew it was going to be a long time. I didn't know how long, but I was committed. And so with that, with that, I, I went to state prison a few months later and embarked on this journey. So um, we said nearly spent 20 years. So you didn't have to get, you didn't get 20 for each person. No. So I took a, a plea bargain for 17 and a half years, um, day for day. So 210 months is how they sentence you in months, not years. So I was promptly sentenced to 210 months and I went to state prison. I got there on January 25th of 2005. And I knew that if I was going to, you know, become a drug and alcohol counselor or, you know, have a platform to be able to share my message, that I had to have an education. At the time I had a GED. So I, I signed up to be a tutor, a GED tutor. I got hired. So I'm working with guys on their GEDs. I then discovered that I can take a community college course one at a time uh, for $25. And so I started that and I said, well, I don't know how this works. If I take enough of these, maybe they'll give me a degree. I don't know. So did you, know? you get paid while you were in there? So they pay you, I was making $60 a month as a tutor, and then I maxed out at $78 a month. And so you spent 25 of that a month on taking a course? I did. Initially, I, I spent 25 of that on taking one college course at a time. And then if we fast forward about three years of doing that, I uh, sadly lost my father, but um, because of that, I was able to get enough money through his pension and, and life insurance policies to start to take distance education courses from major universities. 
So I started taking distance classes from Louisiana State University, Indiana University, and I parlayed all of that into an associate's degree in 2010. I then went on to get a bachelor's in sociology from Colorado State University, Pueblo. And then I finally got a master's degree in psychology from uh, California Coast University. And at that point, I'm, I'm obviously gaining a lot of momentum, but I'm learning a lot about my youthful you know, indiscretions, why, uh, why I turned to alcohol at such a young age, what a self-concept is about, right? I learned about the eight stages of psychosocial development and cognitive development and, you know, all these different theories that explains how we, you know, how and why we develop certain habits, right? And, and how somebody can have a genetic predisposition to substance use, addiction, abuse, things like that. And so I'm starting to untangle this, you know, this, this, this very conflated web of, 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 you know, just, you know, self-deceit and irrationality and, you know, uh, justifications for behaviors. And now I'm able to talk to the younger guys in the prison about life because I'm not just tutoring them on math and social studies and writing. Now I'm, you know, once you build that rapport with, with somebody, now they want to kind of confide in you because as you can imagine in prison, there's not a lot of safe spaces to talk to people about real life issues, right? So when a young person finds that and usually an older person, like they will latch onto them and just, you know, and they'll just pour out their whole heart, right? They've been carrying a lot of trauma. They've been carrying a lot of baggage for many years. They walk around a yard with their chest puffed out, trying to be, a, you know, looking like they have to be a tough guy or thinking they have to be a tough guy when really there's a lot of pain in there that hasn't been resolved. And so well, they would- Excuse me a minute. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, um, you had to have been going through a lot of grieving yourself, right? Um, self-hatred, all kinds of things. Did you have a counselor in there? So I didn't have a counselor. I started to go to church again and I started to go to AA meetings. So they so, had those, wait a minute, they had those inside the prison? In prison, yes. So okay. they have volunteers who come in. Absolutely. They have volunteers who come in and, and do a, 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 an array of different services. But those were the ones that I felt that I needed the most. Get back to my Christian roots and, and do AA, right? And because there was no formal treatment uh, available at the prison, you know, where, where I was. But I'll tell you, for the first three years after this crash had happened, for the month of December, every year for the first three years, Years, I went into a depression because I felt that, you know, it was my duty to honor them by basically, you know, not allowing myself to have fun in the month of December, not going to the yard to lift weights and play basketball and play softball, because I had to basically remember. And when I say remember, literally reliving in my mind every day for the month of December, from the moment I woke up that morning to the crash happening at 1.13 a.m. And I would relive that for the whole month. People noticed my attitude change, my demeanor change. I wasn't, you know, joking and laughing. I was miserable, but I felt that that was my way of kind of honoring them and not forgetting what had happened in the month of December. But I say it happened for three years, three consecutive years. And then on that third year, I said, Martin, 
you made a, a, a solemn vow and commitment to those family members at your sentencing after they had done their victim impact statements. I told them, I said, so you, you know, got to talk to them. I got I got to speak at the at the sentencing. Mm -hmm. And I said, I know it's not much consolation. I said, but I vow to spend the rest of my life doing everything I can to prevent somebody else and other families from feeling what you guys are feeling right now. And so when every December would roll around and I would soak and, you know, kind of wallow in this and this, 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 you know, muck of, of an existence, you know, I said, Martin, you're not, you're not honoring that commitment that you made because you're, 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 you're not putting your energy into this purpose and this calling, mm -hmm. right? You're putting this energy into this self-loathing and the self-condemnation and right. I had prayed to God and I knew God had forgiven me. I even got forgiveness explicitly from some of the family members at my sentencing, but I couldn't forgive myself. Right. right? And that's always the hardest yeah. thing for so that many is. people is forgiving yourself. But I said, I refuse to, you know, go back on my word. And so I'm going to transfer this energy that I'm putting into being miserable and I'm going to put it into this purpose and calling and this mission that I told them I was I was I was going to do. And so at that point, it was like the chains broke, broke free. And I was I was, you know, 100 percent momentum toward this this purpose and this passion. And so I started, you know, mentoring young guys about not just addiction. A lot of guys suffer from addiction in prison, as you can imagine, about 80 percent. Mm -hmm. But um, but just about life and choices and consequences sure. and just being a good community member and having a stake in the community. And so that um, propelled me into a program, an actual drug and alcohol program. By this time, I got my master's degree, but I still needed a thousand hours of clinical um, uh, work to get certified, state certified as a substance abuse counselor. So I transferred to another prison, the only prison in Oregon that has a drug and alcohol program in a medium custody level prison. All the other ones are at the minimum custody level because those guys are going to go home in a few years. So they want to put the resources into them. But if you're at a medium level, if you have five years or more, you're automatically classified as a medium level custody, you know, inmate. And they don't have drug and alcohol counseling, except for at one prison. So I transferred to that prison and I talked to the boss and they don't even have a program that actually allows somebody to go through and work on clinical hours to get certified. But he had seen what I had done up to that point with my own education, paid for it all myself out of my pocket. You don't get federal Pell grants as an inmate. Right. right. Thank goodness they're coming back next year. I'm very, very happy about that for guys who, who, you know, could benefit from that. Well, we all benefit from that really. But he said, seeing that commitment, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, I'll make you a deal. He said, you go through my program as a participant for seven months, learn everything that we do here. And then I will allow you to start mentoring the guys, running the groups, doing assessments, doing the clinical work under me that will allow you to get certified in, you know, another year, year and a half. Nice. So that's what I did. And um, it was it was a beautiful, amazing experience. And I got certified, state certified in 2019. I then transferred to another prison with now uh, two and a half years left. And then I did some other courses. And um, so why did you transfer again? 
So I transferred to a med- uh, a minimum level security prison mm-hmm. because there's there's more more you know time out of your cell and more time on the yard. There's just more kind of freedoms. Like put in for that transfer. Yes, you put okay. you have to put in for any transfer. Sometimes they'll transfer you without you even knowing. But I had actually asked That's to be transferred. Mean. Yeah, once I had gotten my certification, I was ready to move on to a lower level prison and just kind of you know ease into my release. And so I was released. So, so let me say, let me, let me back up a little bit and say that in 2015, when I was still working on my master's degree, they started to bring DUI victim impact panels within the prison. So they would have volunteers come in from outside and they would have one person who would tell their story about how they had lost a loved one to a drunk driver. And then they would, they would have one of us on the inside who was there for drunk driving tell our story of course with the full accountability and remorse and you know it's a very therapeutic um setting so there's 50 inmates in a circle and this happens and i'm telling you there was there was so much healing that took place in that room i'll tell you briefly there was there was a woman who would come in and you could just see you could just see the wall that was up and she tells her story about how a man had killed her daughter 20 years prior, her 18 year old daughter, beautiful, had her whole life ahead of her going into the Navy and her life is taken by this drunk driver. And the guy never apologized. He never, he never gave an ounce of sympathy for what he had done. And she carried this, this, this weight understandably of, of hatred and, and bitterness toward him. And so when she came in that day, that was transferred onto us. It was it was evident that she did not care for anybody in that room. And then the guy, when she when she got and done speaking, what was she in there for? No, so she had come in from the outside. She was a volunteer. Oh, okay. So so volunteers from the outside would come into the prison to tell their story to a room of inmates about how somebody had taken their loved one from a DUI crash. That sounds kind of mean. Well. But so so the goal, the goal was to get us in prison to think about the choices we make and how it affects people when we do eventually release. Right. Get that. But for somebody that's so full of hate. Right. Right. That's not good. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. So the guy that the inmate then gets up and speaks after her and he starts before he even talks about, you know, the crime that he committed where he unfortunately i'm so afraid that this is going to be the same guy that did it no it's not the same guy who did it okay even better so this guy stands up and he says ma'am he said thank you so much for being here it takes a lot of courage to get up and 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 talk about something like this he said i know i'm not the guy who who killed your beautiful daughter but let me just say you know standing in his shoes let me say i am so sorry I am so sorry this happened to you. And he tells his story and she gets up afterwards and she says, I know you're not the man who killed my daughter, but I have waited over 20 years to hear hear those words. And you giving me those words from your position as someone who has done this, I can't tell you what that has done for me. And like, she gave him a hug. And the tears, I mean, you have murderers, you have rape, you have any, every crime known to man in that room. And like the tears were just flowing. And she came in three or four more times. 
from everybody. Wow. I, it, it was, I mean, it, it was so, it was such a heavy, beautiful moment. And, and, you know, afterwards she came in three or four more times and like every, you know, she was, she, it was just a much different her. And she said that it, it gave her something that she didn't even know she was still looking for after all these years. Right. She had accepted the fact this guy was never going to apologize. And it just did so much for her to hear it from this guy stepping in as a surrogate to say, I am so sorry that happened to you. So, you know, we talk about restorative justice and, and that being, you know, one of the, 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 you know, mechanisms that's used in other countries, somewhat in the U.S., but a lot more in other countries. And, it, you know, statistically, we know it re reduces recidivism so much more than it does in the U.S. or just locking somebody up and, you know, saying we'll see you in 10 years. Right. But for people to be a part of the collective healing process, because we know that when somebody commits a crime in society, there's a ripple effect. Right. It's a communal pain that is felt. And so if the pain happens in a communal sense, then it also makes sense under the right circumstance that the healing would also have to be in a communal sense, including the offender who takes full accountability, who is extremely remorseful and who wants to make amends. If you have those elements from that person, then it makes them feel that they're still wanted in the community, that they have a debt to pay because the debt is not just going to prison. A lot of people say, oh, you got to pay your debt to society. You're going to go to prison for 10 years. Some of don't even care about it. You know, it gives them a place to stay and get fed. And exactly, and exactly. When they get out and start all over. That is not paying a debt. To right. me, if you ask me, my 17 and a half years was merely the down payment. I owe it to society. I owe it to my community. I owe it to the people who are no longer here because of me to continue to pay this back to society, to continue to do good and try to bring awareness and prevent other people from doing the same thing. That's where you pay back society. Mm -hmm. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank I, you. I, I really am. And I think this is bringing a new aspect to other people to see the other side. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that didn't get that apology or that and they and they haven't been able to forgive and it's a horrible thing to hold that in your heart sure you know it's it's damaging on both sides right um so i i'm i'm really glad that you got to to share that part of it absolutely I appreciate that it was and incredible so where are you today so it, it's funny tomorrow will mark the one year anniversary since my release and I cannot tell you, and let me say this. That's when this will come out. Oh, wonderful. So I will say that before I got out, about six months before I got out, I started to have some fear and anxiety about what life was going to feel like well, sober, I right? Well, yeah, right. outside of those walls. Exactly. Everything changed, technology and, and you know, the political climate is different and social and culture. Oh my gosh. Everything is different, right? Yes. But a huge part of me. Right in the middle of COVID. Right in the middle of COVID. A exactly. Lot of angry people. Yes, indeed. I saw it on the news every day. <sighs> and so, but there was a lot of trepidation about, you know, would I be able to have fun and enjoy life sober? Because I had never been sober since I was 14 years old. 14, yeah. Right. And so let me just tell you, 
Uh, it is a total myth to think that life is going to be boring. I have gone skydiving. I've been surfing. I've been rock climbing. I've been to Vegas. I've been to the Bahamas. I've taken a cruise. I've, you know, been to Philly. I've been to Baltimore. I've traveled. Life How are you has able to afford all that. So I still, I still have some of the the, the money left over from you know that my dad. Yeah. That, so I want to. we inherited about that. Yeah. I want to say something about that if you don't. Sure. So. In the beginning, um, you talked about how you felt poor. Right. Um, your dad was working. Mm -hmm. Was your mom working? She could not work. She was she, she was ill. Work. Yeah, she okay, was so ill her whole life. Mm -hmm. But do you think you were really poor or you just didn't have as much as everybody else? That's it. That's that's a great distinction. So I knew that my community was impoverished, but 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 my household was full of love. We never went hungry. We got presents for every birthday, for Christmases, new clothes at the beginning of every school year. We didn't feel that we were going without anything. And your father, as hard as he worked, he made sure that he left you guys something. 100%. 100%. He was all about his kids and, and he, he worked until... He passed away. It's, it's so sad. My dad worked at 60 years old. He put in his retirement papers with Freightliner. He had worked there for 25 years and he passed away two weeks later before he got his first retirement check. There's a reason and for that. I just, you're, you're a believer. You know there's a reason for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it sounds to me like it was to help you. And I, I wanted to do everything I could to honor his hard work by investing into my future so that I could help other people. And um, sounds like you're doing that. So there's a downside from what I understand um, to also like getting jobs if you have a felony and all that. Are you going through that or are you okay? Uh, 100%, I did not encounter that. And that used to, that used to be the, well, I can, it still it, is in certain in, companies. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what you go into, it was, it, it was a very, it was a very rigorous process for me to get the job. It had to go through department of human services because I am a counselor and mm -hmm. I'm a suicide prevention specialist. So those, it, it has to go through the organ. Uh, uh, Department of Human Services, and they did an extensive investigation and had a committee meeting and discussed me and my case and if I was going to be suitable for this position. And they looked at my track record of being in prison and what I had done when I was in prison. And they said, you know, this guy deserves a shot. And that makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there, and, but then there's, what about where you're living? Right. So I'm, I'm in PA. Um, um, I go back and forth between Oregon and, and, and Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm on supervision in the state of Oregon, but they allow me to travel to, to Pennsylvania because oh. I have done everything Who's by the book. So my fiance is here in Pennsylvania. Okay. Yes. And, and so we met actually, believe it or not, we met a year into my sentence on a pen pal website. Oh, 
And yeah, we, we met on a pen pal website. She had actually, she had saw a documentary on inmates and they talked about the importance of a letter, right? An inmate being able to have contact with the outside. Mm -hmm. And she just, she's such a sincere, beautiful person. And she said, oh, I wanna, I wanna put a smile on an inmate's face, right? And so she writes this little paragraph and, um, you know, she wasn't thinking about relationship or romance or anything like that, nor was I. Mm-hmm. And but we just struck up this this pen pal correspondence, and you know we would write these. Happened to be you that got it. So so she went onto a website. So at that time, I placed an ad on a pen pal website. You get to write like two hundred and fifty words. You just kind of you know what are my what your hobbies are, what you're looking for in a pen pal, and you have a picture on there. And so she's scrolling through all these different profiles, all these inmate pictures. Some guys look you know, like they want to kill somebody, yeah. right? And, and I've got a smile on my face because that's just who I am. And mm-hmm. so it kind of stood out from the others. So, oh, he looks interesting. So she clicks on my little profile and it comes up and talks about my goals and what I want to do while I'm in prison and, you know, education and stuff like that. So she's she like, okay. To talk about. Right. And so we had yeah. that common ground and then the letters turned into phone calls, phone calls turned, in, turned into visits. She would get on a plane, 2,500 miles to really? Oregon would stay five days in a hotel because you can visit. And expensive to fly out. Very with. expensive. Well, not as expensive as it is today, let me tell you. But it, um, it, it's, I'm going to tell you what, I, I think I told you, I've got family in Oregon. Okay. And I have been, I mean, since I was in high school, I, uh-huh. my sisters lived out there, my nieces, my nephews. Wow. And that is the most expensive flights is really and triple the amount to go east really oh I, I had no idea i had yep. i had never been on a plane before i got out of prison so let me tell you 25 <laughs> years ago i was spending anywhere four to five hundred dollars a round trip to go on that west coast that makes sense okay That's that makes expensive. sense to go to go to the East Coast and go to Florida, right? Spending half of that, really. And I'm right, you know, in Central, right, right. It's that is interesting. Always been the most expensive to go. Still, it's it's way more than that now. Very yes, but that I was know. Expensive 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So so so, so yes, yeah, she, she spent some good money to oh, go she, visit you. She spent a lot of money, and then the hotel and a rental car. And she would do this every six months, and she do was. You mind stay, if I ask what she did for a living? Uh, military. Military. Yeah, the National she Guard. Got a discount here. at least. Yeah, I guess they do give like a ten percent discount. They do. And um, so yeah, so we did that for many years, and she obviously supported all my education. So she was the one behind the scenes, you know, talking to the advisors, ordering my books from Amazon you know, Aww. ordering my exams that had to be proctored, you know, I mean, just everything. I published two books. She had to do all the footwork for that. I would literally write, you know, pen and paper in my cell, put it in the envelope and send her a chapter that she would have to type up on her computer because we didn't have any computer access. Okay. So, you know, my entire first book was done collaboratively with her. Later, we were able to get, you know, technology. Now, I don't have the names of your books. I'd love to get them and get it out there too. Well, thank you. Um, so the the memoir is Prison to Purpose Pipeline. Wait, wait, wait. Prison to Purpose. And, and I'll have you give me that information afterwards so that I can sure. put it on. So Prison to Purpose. Pipeline. Prison to Pipeline? Prison to Purpose Pipeline. 
to purpose. Right. Pipeline. Okay. And then the second one is my prison life. Okay. And there are they on Amazon? They are. Okay. Yeah. So is so, that how is that who she had? Like you didn't go through a booking agency. She just right right so so I tried to you know you go through the whole process of trying to get an agent and trying to get you know published main mainstream publishers but doing it from inside you know you can't market it so they're not really looking to take a chance on somebody who doesn't really have a platform right it could be the most compelling story ever and I did get some good feedback from some editors and things like that but it was too much of a risk at that time to take it on. Now that I'm out and I've been getting more speaking opportunities and things like that, I'm looking to build a platform to where, I, you know, I then can get published um, through a mainstream publisher. So <clears throat> we did it ourselves uh, through I Amazon. Some really famous people that did their own books and their own covers even. Yeah. And did a non-edited version yeah. of their books that are bestsellers. I, I, I can imagine. Because that's the raw, real, you know, And that's stuff. what people are wanting now. Yeah. Then maybe I'll stick with what I have because everything but is... is uh, seriously, I, I know three of them now. Wow. That have best-selling and they continue to stay up on the top 10. Good for them. And did, didn't did hire an editor. Could They could. They have the money right. to. Not doing that. Uh, drew their own cover. Wow. Uh, one of them, their husband to the, the cover, but said to her, you know what, don't, don't send it to an editor. Don't change a thing. Right. Everything that you're saying in there is real and that's wrong. right. And people, people are going to love that. And they, that's do. right. And I, I do. Yeah. You know, I got sent the book and I go back to things in it all the time. So, you know, I'm anxious to read yours. I don't know if you have any quotes in there that you used or anything like that, but you know, this person I'm talking about did. Yeah. Um, and there's things that, you know, I go, I, I keep it on hand and go back to certain things. And, and even some things that are funny. Right. You know, or some things that are sad. There's you know, all of that. <laughs> Believe that me. Just, yeah. That yeah. You're going to, you know, go back. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm so proud of you. Thank you. So life has been life has been great. I again, I work with a substance abuse counselor. I uh, talk to people who are suicidal and that's the other thing I wanted to ask you why did you get into that so I got hired as a substance abuse counselor right right but it's 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 remote and so they the, the organization that I work for that's only a part of what they do they also service uh military people who are going through PTSD crises uh, seniors who are lonely, youth who are in a crisis, and they are part of the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. So probably about 60% of my calls are from the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. So a part of my job, yes. Um, I do my research, obviously. The suicide rate is so high since COVID started. 100%, yeah. That it's just unbelievable. I spoke to somebody just a couple of weeks ago, Canada. He had five friends that, and none of them hung around in the same group. So they were five friends, but they were like from separate groups. Yeah. 
five of them that committed suicide in a week. Oh my goodness. And he, he works with suicide prevention and he's like, Canada is like, if you look at the numbers. And so I looked, I looked that up I, and looked up the United States and it's like everywhere. You know? It is. So I, I never would have imagined that would have been become number one. Yes. Yeah. Now. Yeah. But it is. Yeah. COVID has, you know, the social isolate isolation. I mean, think about it as people, we are social creatures by nature, right? When we're going through a hard time, we tend to feel better when we've been able to connect with someone who, you know, we can talk to and they listen well and they're empathetic and they show compassion. We don't do well in isolation, right? <laughs> and so, and so it makes sense that when you lock everything down for more than you know, a year or two years, that people are going to suffer, especially people who are already dealing with right. mental health disorders, right. Right? right? And so the rates of suicide are up, especially amongst young people, teenagers, the rates of substance use uh, abuse is up drastically across the board. And so we've definitely seen the volume tick up, um, you know, since, since I've even started working there since last October. But the beautiful thing that I'm really happy to announce is in a few days here in July, there's going to be a national, the 988. So you've heard of 911, obviously, right. for emergencies. The right. 988 is going to be the same number you call for a behavioral health crisis, for a mental, oh a mental crisis. Easy number. You don't have to remember the 1-800-273-8255. You just dial 988 and you'll get connected to uh, a, a, a crisis worker in your state, depending on your area code that's on your phone, mm -hmm. it'll route you to someone in that state. And if that's everyone wonderful. in that state is busy, then it'll go over to the next state. So you will be able to connect with someone in your crisis. And, and it's, I'm so happy that, uh, that that's been passed legislatively and, and it's going to be enacted. So here. In a few days. Is there a headquarters for that? So every state, every state has an organization. I understand that, but there's got to be a headquarters, like some, like a federal uh, federal headquarters. I am not aware of that. I know that every state has their organization that will fill those calls. So you don't know what it'll be called. Will, will they all be called the same thing? So it's just it's just it's just nine eight eight is the number, and it's for the it's for a behavioral crisis. Is, huh. is is what we're being told and so you'll be able to connect with the with a crisis worker in your state and get the help that you need i'd um, love to get some information on that to see like who's actually i i mean you're saying this coming from the federal government right so yeah. it was so it was approved it was approved federally but every state then has to kind of you know operate yeah. their yeah. their own kind of infrastructure to fill those calls so Lines for Life is the organization that I work for. So we take all the Lines national for life. Lines for Life in Oregon, in Portland, actually. And so we take all the national suicide prevention uh, calls. And so in another state, it'll be whatever organization they have. Right. And then in your state, there's an organization that will take the Illinois you know, calls and so on and so forth. Okay. So. Okay, well, um, we probably should make a close to this. I normally end with what is your biggest, what has been your biggest life struggle? But wow, um, can you pinpoint it? Uh, 
It's been, it's been my addiction. It's been my alcoholism and my reliance on it to feel okay and to feel better about myself because that was at the root of all of my But you struggles. had a gateway though to that. Right, so. the, the insecurities, right? The, the, the lack of a healthy self-concept, the understanding of my importance in this world. And so what I need to get out to people then is what you do when you have those, like you never did really get into how you got over those, you covered them, but how did you get over them? Right. So it was when I went to prison this second time and I started to take these college courses and I started to, you know, understand that, wow, I'm actually, you know, halfway intelligent. Wow. I'm actually, you know, feeling good about the fact that I can get A's and B's and I can have this sense of achievement and this sense of an identity, because now I know that, you know, my importance, you know, in this world does not come from the kind of car I drive or the the pretty girls that I hang out with, but it comes from being of service to other people. It comes from other people saying, oh, my goodness, like, you know, you inspired me so much or, man, you told me something that I've never forgotten. And now I'm going to, you know, go to school myself. I want to be a better father because, you know, something I gave them. And so that's what my sense of validation comes from. Knowing that I'd like to hear you say is that you have self-love now. One hundred percent. Because I think that's one of the most important things that people have to have. One hundred percent. I love myself. I am totally secure in who I am. And, you know, just waking up every day and knowing that the work that I do is making a difference. That's where I derive my validation from. That's it. Okay. Um, There was one thing, and then we'll close it up, that I I wanted to go back to. And that was, um, I've had a couple different views um, professionally and unprofessionally given by people. I do have a lot of addiction in my family, okay? A lot. But my mom comes from a, you know, she had 13 siblings. So wow. <laughs> um, a very, very big family. Um, so there's, anyway, there's a lot out there and there's a lot of cousins and whatever. Do you, do you think that you had any kind of gene of addiction in you? So I've thought about that. So mm-hmm. all they know in the, in the DSM manual that they use to, you know, um, diagnose people. So they know that about if you have a biological parent who is addicted to a substance. So let's assume it doesn't that- have to be a parent. It can be down the line. Right, exactly, exactly. So I'm just talking about biological parents. Mm-hmm. Then there's a then 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 there's a forty to sixty percent right. variability that you'll inherit it. Right. Right. Now my my mom's brother, brother. Uh, died from an overdose of alcohol and pain medication. My grandfather was an alcoholic. Right. So there seems to be that that genetic predisposition. Yeah. Can't say emphatically for certain, but signs are pointing to that yes right and that's there's also and you can kind of tell the difference I mean addiction is addiction but and and I'm not in any way making excuses for it um 
I know that it's a gene in our family and it scares me. So I don't even want to try anything. Good for you. I don't want to be there. Okay. So I'm, I'm openly admitted. I'm a chicken. Well, a chicken who has a chicken who has avoided that, 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 you know, that fatal wound. But I've also watched it all my life and I've watched it destroy people. Exactly. So, you know, a very painful way of watching it. Yeah. And, and having to live through it, just me not, me not being uh, an alcohol. My my addiction is sugar, and people laugh at me and they're Mine like, oh, "What addiction to have?" But <laughs> it's really not. You know, I mean, like my son asked me every he he drives for Jimmy John's. That's his part time job. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And you know, delivering, and they have these fantastic chocolate chip cookies. Yes. And every time he works before he leaves, he'll like send me a message or he'll call and say, would you like a chocolate chip cookie? Well, he doesn't get up until 12 o'clock at night. Uh, And I'm like, don't do that to me (laughs) because I can't take a bite and put it away. No way. I'm going to eat that great big cookie. Yes. And at 12 o'clock or one o'clock in the morning. Right. Which is like the worst time to eat. It is. Um, but it has a lot of sugar in it. Mm-hmm. And diabetes is a big thing to watch for. So um, a sugar addiction, even though everybody laughs at me when I say I have an addiction and that's what it is, really isn't funny. Right. Because I actually fight it. Mm-hmm. Like if I take that bite, I finish everything. I can right. put it down. Exactly. And he's tried to like, he's like, well, I'll just hide it. So if you're asleep, I won't wake you up and give it to you. I'll just hide it. And but I find it. Right. When right. I get anxious over something or I have a bad day, I go looking through their places where they hide them. Right. I find them. Because it releases that same dopamine chemical it, that, it that somebody does. who is doing drugs is it looking absolutely for. absolutely does. That's so right. that addiction is real. It is. Um, it's not as... Um, Deadly. It's not illegal. Right, or illegal. You know, it's not yeah. that, but it can kill me. It can. If it's out of control, it so, certainly yeah. can. Yeah. So... But you're on top of it. You understand that it's, it's a problem. I understand and, it. Yeah, I yeah. fight it. And I will laugh with people when they laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the chocolate part of it, because yes. chocolate also has that extra endorphin in it yes. to make you feel better. Yes, it does. The same one that we excrete when we are in love. So, yes. Yes. So, if, yes. if, if I'm going to have sugar, I make sure it's chocolate too. Yeah. You know, yeah. both of them. Yes. So. <laughs> that's it um i i'm so happy and i'm so excited i i hope i get this all edited and get it out on your day sure your anniversary that is so super cool that would be awesome but take your time i i'm just appreciative for the fact that oh, you I'll, gave me this I'll, opportunity I'll and... if i have to I gotta get it out <laughs> on your day. thank you thank you okay. so much this this was a real pleasure and honor to be here and it's it's an honor to have you as a speaker and a motivation person and inspiration. Thank you. 
Hitch Products was in my life a blessing. I love the products. I just want to tell you a little bit about Kitsch. Kitsch is a proud to be recognized and a self-financed female-owned global accessory brand built on positivity and pure hard work. It was established in 2010 with a business plan no longer than a paragraph. Kitsch has grown from door-to-door sales to selling products in over 27 countries across 20,000 retail locations worldwide. Kitsch is committed to creating high-quality products that are effortless, elevated, and easy to use. From fashionable shower caps, which I wear every time I want to take a quick shower and I don't have to wash my hair, to minimal metal hair clips that I use every day when I'm fixing my hair. Kitsch is evolving your everyday essentials. You might see me on Instagram advertising so many of the products that I use and I just love them. If you're interested, go to my profile or you may go to mykitch.com and enter the code Christy Collier 15 to get your 15% off now and see how much you're going to love these products. I just want to say thank you and congratulations to Martin. He was such an amazing guest and has become, to me, a personal friend now. And guess what? Today is his anniversary of one year out of prison. So go on to Instagram Find him and congratulate him, and I will share his link in the description. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode. We so much appreciate you. And if you would like to sponsor us in any way, you may contact us at strugglesarehard at gmail.com. That's S-T-R-U-G-G-L-E-S-A-R-E-H-A-R-D dot com. <laughs>